Welcome to St. James Lutheran Church and School right here in the heart of Chicago. I pray that you find hope and peace in the message of Christ and Him crucified for you in your life right now. Thank you for listening. And please, if you'd like to support the mission going on right here, uh, please go to our webpage, stjames-lutheran.org, to donate. Thank you. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Heavenly Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. If you're anything like me, and you grew up in the early 2000s version of uh, Christian uh, teaching and the Christian church in general, maybe more specifically Christian youth groups in the early 2000s, there is one term that made you more uncomfortable than the rest. There is one that maybe set you on the edge of your seat, and that's the term spiritual warfare. We talked about spiritual warfare in my youth group. Maybe that's because I'm part of a weird youth group, or at least was. But uh, there was this sense that there were cosmic stakes to what was happening in the Christian church. In fact, there was a sense that, like that meme you might see go around on Facebook, God and Satan were in this cosmic arm wrestling match, ready to uh, win you as the prize that was at stake. Would you help Jesus win the battle? Or would you fall prey to Satan and his lies? And that idea, that image, isn't new. In fact, uh, one of my favorite pieces of Americana comes from kind of the revival era. And during the the revival era, the Great Awakening kind of idea, you would have these big tent gatherings where people would gather together and they'd spend the entire day uh, listening to various preachers who would usually kind of be traveling acts and they would come through towns and they would tell you all about, you know, uh, the kingdom of heaven and spiritual warfare. And one of the flyers they would hand out, I think is just awesome for all the wrong reasons, uh, because it kind of looked like a ballot sheet as they were advertising their revival. And at the top of the ballot, it said... Your soul is at stake. God has voted yes for you to get into heaven. Satan has voted no. It's a tie. You have the deciding vote. And I think there's something about that image that entices us as Americans, right? My vote finally matters in something. And whenever we think about spiritual warfare we want to think that we have an important part to play along those lines, that we get to be the big hero of the story. And I think that when we consider this topic, we're often asking the wrong questions. We ask the question, who am I in the story of salvation, rather than asking, who is Jesus in the story of my salvation? And that's why I love that Lent begins with this section of Mark, because it's all about Jesus's identity. It's familiar, right? Jesus goes to Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And then we see Jesus's identity revealed. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens torn open, the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. We're only nine verses into Mark's gospel, and he's kind of given away the ending. He's told us exactly who Jesus is. There's no mystery. The heavens are ripped apart, and there's the Father's voice saying, this is my beloved Son. That's never been said before. This is a unique thing. There is cosmic significance attached to Jesus here as we are contemplating this Trinitarian image 
of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit presenting Jesus as the beloved Son of God, it changes the way we view what Jesus is doing. You see, the entire point, then, of Mark's gospel is about this Jesus sharing that unique relationship as the beloved Son with those whom he encounters. It's a gift given to everyone along the way. The disciples are called to be part of the church, and they are now made beloved sons. They are made heirs of the heavenly kingdom, all because of this Jesus who is here to seek and save the lost. You might be wondering, why does this matter? What does this matter? Well, Jesus' baptism actually has to do with our own baptism. You see, baptism established Jesus' identity. This is the beloved Son. With Jesus, I am well pleased. But your own baptism established your identity as well. At baptism, you are told that you are a beloved son and daughter of God, that you are someone with whom God is well pleased. St. Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So you are sons and daughters of God. Why? Because the Father says so, just like he said Jesus was the beloved son there at his baptism. So how does that, that identity, impact our view of spiritual warfare? Well, it's not much of a battle, really, because the battle's already over. The victory is won. Satan lost. Jesus is the conqueror. But what's interesting is that in this battle, your blood wasn't shed. Instead, Jesus' blood was shed. And Jesus' blood washed over all your sins, not just part of your sins, not just one of your sins, but washed over all of your sin. You didn't know it, but that was the most significant event in your life. For the most part, we're brought to the baptismal font as babies. We don't know what's going on, and yet there God declared that you are my beloved son. Your sins are forgiven. You are washed and made new. That is the identity that we should ground ourselves in. When you were brought to the waters of holy baptism, there Jesus' victory was declared to be your victory. So there's no need to check the ballot box and vote which way to break the tie because Christ Jesus has already vanquished Satan. He crushed him underfoot. At the cross, there, by Jesus' own death and resurrection, sin was defeated. So when we wrestle, fight against the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, as Martin Luther would say in the Catechism, we know that this is not much of a fight because Jesus has already won. Our sins are forgiven. The only reason that we get distracted by this is the extent that Satan's a sore loser, and he wants to try to distract us from the victory that's found in Jesus Christ. But one day, we confess that we will see this victory revealed for what it is. On the last day, that's where the curtain is torn back and we're able to, with our eyes, see what our tongues have confessed the whole time, which is that Christ Jesus is the very Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. He is the conquering victor. How should we handle temptation then, right? Because this is a hard question. 
I think many people wrestle with this. I think that we don't know how to handle our day-to-day lives when it comes to that theme of spiritual warfare and how we're to resist Satan's temptations. Maybe you wonder whether those temptations will rob you of your salvation because in the moment, it can feel like it's a difficult thing. Maybe Satan's lies fool us into thinking that something can snatch us from the grasp of our Heavenly Father. I don't mean to dis- downplay those concerns, right? Those are real concerns that we have. There is salvation at stake. That's what we're talking about. But too often, we look at the wrong thing. We turn inward on ourselves. We ask ourselves how we can save ourselves. We look at our own faith, our own thoughts, our own desires, rather than looking to Christ alone. Faith is only as strong as its object. So the object of our faith is Christ Jesus. That means our faith is not only strong, our faith is victorious. And if you want to see the theme of Jesus' victory, again, Mark spoils the ending. Because the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is a strange story, but it is a beautiful story of Jesus' victory. Mark says, The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is very weird language. It doesn't say that the Spirit led Jesus. It doesn't say that the Spirit kind of gently nudged Jesus. The Spirit drove Jesus, pushed him out. This is exorcism language, right? Cast out. So there's this theme that Jesus is being tossed out into the wilderness because his mission is urgent. It is important. He is there to win the first of many victories over Satan, and to ransom captive Israel from their sins. So God has a plan for Jesus, and there's this immediacy to what Jesus is doing. He's going out there to care for you, to secure your victory over sin, over Satan, and over the grave. And the story of Mark's gospel is Jesus winning those victories all along the way on behalf of the church. What I like, though, is this little weird detail that Mark includes. Jesus is out in the wilderness, says he's out with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Think back to Advent. During Advent, we discussed what angels are and what they're to do. The word angel is actually just the word messenger, right? They're people who come bearing messages, messages, right? So the angels themselves more often than not, have a message for God's people. Well, these messengers are caring for Jesus. I would argue you have messengers that are caring for you in much the same way. We're out here in the wilderness of life. There are all sorts of things that we battle against. Sins, temptation, suffering, all of these ideas. And yet God gives you messengers. Who are these messengers? Well, one of them is your pastor, Pastors want to provide you spiritual care so that when you are afflicted by your sins, when you are struggling with temptation, when you are not sure who's the victor in your spiritual battle, you have a messenger who can tell you Christ's victory is your victory. That's spiritual care. That's what pastors are here to do as we administer the sacraments. We give you Christ's body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. We preach the word so that even though we forget Jesus is the victor, we can hear it again and again, and you can hear that your sins are forgiven. Not sin in the abstract, but instead the sins that plague you. 
That's what it means to minister to one another. And you are part of the priesthood of all believers, which means you have a similar role. You forgive the sins of those around you. You care for the people around you through your vocation, and you preach the good news by your words and your deeds. You are, whether you know it or not, a messenger to your community, to your family, to your friends. Jesus' victory is the core of that message, and that's what we pass on to those around us. Now, what does Jesus do after this, right? We said he's, he wins this victory, so what does he do? Does he have a parade afterward? Well, no. He actually preaches a sermon. Mark tells us that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. I said a few weeks ago when this text came up last that this is the shortest sermon of all time. If this was every sermon, we would be in and out in under 45 minutes. Repent and believe in the gospel. It is as simple as it gets. And yet it's important because Mark is not letting us get distracted by anything else. Repentance, of course, means being sorry, contrition over our sins. But belief in the gospel is the belief that Jesus' victory is already won, that Jesus has conquered Satan. In fact, Mark tells us the gospel of Jesus Christ is why he's writing this account. And the gospel term is really important. It's the term euangelion, which is the term reserved for victory after a battle. It's when Roman messengers would go along and say, the battle is won, your community is safe, you are safe. The barbarians have been turned away. And Jesus is telling anyone who will listen that yes, the victory has been won. And in fact, you're going to see the greatest victory of all, which will come upon the cross of Calvary. That's where the fight is really over. When Jesus says it is finished, it actually is. Repent and believe in the gospel believe Jesus' victory is for you. If we're looking to understand spiritual warfare, I think our analogy is totally backwards if we're thinking about it like a vote. It's not a vote. Instead, I think of a historical example. Think back to your, your history class. During World War II, there were soldiers that didn't know, especially on the Japanese front, that the war was over, right? The most famous of these was a guy, Hiro Onoda. He fought in World War II. He was camped out in the Philippines. He stayed at his post for 29 years, stuck there, fighting a battle that he didn't know was over. And in fact, it took an explorer to come along and say, good job, you did your duty, well done, good and faithful servant, but come on back home, the war is over. He didn't understand the battle was over. He thought he had to fight this fight, right? He didn't get that his duty was actually already accomplished. It was already over. And I think, while it's not a perfect analogy, that's kind of us when it comes to our spiritual life. We think we've got to do something, right? We've got to fight. We've got to battle. We've got to, you know, fight back against Satan and his forces. And we forget too often, because of the many distractions of this life that we're in, that Jesus has already won the battle. Jesus Christ is the center of your salvation story. Eternal life is yours. Your sins are atoned for. You are forgiven. You are a new creation. We need a messenger like that explorer that will come to us time and time again and preach that good news into our hearts and into our minds because we are so apt to forget it. I do this myself. We get caught up in whatever it is that we're working on. We think this is the be-all, end-all, and we think the world is crumbling because of the many stresses in our life, and we need to hear the gospel someone telling you that your sins are forgiven, that Jesus Christ is the victor, the heavenly kingdom is present even now, 
nothing will rob you of your salvation. You are God's beloved child. It was told to you at your baptism. That is a gift that grounds your identity. So with that identity at the forefront of our mind, take that theme into Lent. We're now in the midst of Lent, and I encourage you to take this view of spiritual warfare not as something you have to do, but instead a reminder of what is already done in Christ Jesus. So the center of our Lenten practice is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And with that, we can do three things, as I said with our children's sermon. We can repent, we can return, and we can renew. What do these three things mean? Repentance is pretty straightforward. It's acknowledging the brokenness of our world, our brokenness, our sinfulness, that there are people we've failed to help, there are people that we have hurt. And yet repentance is always grounded in Christ Jesus. We repent of the ways that we have fallen short, and we marvel at the ways that Jesus Christ forgives, renews, strengthens, shows us his grace, even in the midst of that brokenness. Repentance is one of the things that's at the heart of Lent. Returning is exactly what it sounds like as well. It means returning to the Lord our God. If you're anything like me, you forget about things. Sometimes I forget about important things, and that's not good. But when we forget about those things, we can be encouraged by our process of returning. Returning to God, who cares for us as he preaches the gospel and gives us his gifts of word and sacrament. But more important, when we return, God does not hold us at arm's length. Think of the story of the prodigal son. What does the father do upon the prodigal son's return? He welcomes him back. He gives him a celebratory feast. He clothes him in honorable attire. He welcomes the son back fully. No questions, no exceptions. He is forgiven. In fact, the father says, the son that was dead is now alive again. That's life inside the church. We return knowing that we have a Father who richly forgives us, who loves us to an insane degree, and who is steadfast and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Finally, during the season of Lent, take this as a time of renewal, right? To make all things new. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, a new has come. Hear that reality, week in and week out, that you are in Christ. You are a new creation. In baptism, you were declared to be God's own child. That means you are part of that heavenly kingdom, a totally new creation. St. Paul intensifies that language. He says that if you were baptized, you were united with Christ in a death like his, but you were also united with Christ in a resurrection like his. Resurrection life is about as new as it can get. And the point is, you are entirely new. May this pattern of return, repentance, renewal, bless your Lenten practice throughout the rest of these 40 days. And may you continue to take to heart that reality that the spiritual warfare is already ended. Jesus Christ's victory is your victory. You are a new creation because of the grace and love that is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now may the peace that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.